Okay, everybody, I'd like to uh, introduce you all to uh, Suresh Dakshina and Sri Surin Basin. Did I uh, mess your name up? I'm so sorry if I did, Sri. Um, they... Not at all. It's great. Okay, great. Uh, Suresh and Sri are co-founders of Chargeback Gurus, and uh, thank you both for taking the time to talk with us today, and welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Glad to be here. Oh, Great. So I wanted to, you know, first we always like to give everybody a little bit of background about uh, who we're, who we're speaking with. Uh, so maybe if you could each take a turn and, or, uh, you know, give us a little background on how you got into merchant services and what led you to start Chargeback Gurus. Yes, thank you very much for that opportunity. Well, Suresh and I have been entrepreneurs for the past 16 years, and uh, we've started multiple successful business ventures. And one of the first ventures we started was a um, customer service and sales call center, uh-huh. and where we serviced uh, business clients from around the world. So when we faced our first chargeback from a business client of ours, uh-huh. <laughs> we had no help. We had no help to figure out how to even fight the chargebacks, mm-hmm. even though we had all the right evidence. You know, the 800 number was not very helpful at all. So I took the time myself to educate myself and um, gather all the evidence and to file the file everything on time. Mm-hmm. And I found that I found ev- I won every single chargeback. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, That's amazing. And this and James and I were just talking about that a few minutes ago, about how hard it is to f- successfully fight chargebacks. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things, you know, I've learned in my business journey is to document everything. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very particular about documentation. So that really helped at that time because, you know, it was the deep, dark, mysterious world of chargebacks at that time, and literally there was no help. Right. This was before 2005. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, going through those trials and tribulations really helped us so much in understanding how chargebacks work. Right. Right, you know, and at the same time, with the knowledge that we gained, um, we also started helping our own clients fight and win chargebacks. Obviously, mm-hmm. as a call center, you know how no matter what you do, you are going to face chargebacks. If sure. You accept mm-hmm. not present owners. So since we are very successful in winning their chargebacks, our clients also started relying on us to uh, solve their payments challenges, like uh-huh. um, high declines, how to understand merchant account fees, and also how to control fraud. So that's how we started learning more, and um, as we started to grow, we were very successful in solving their pain points, um, and also became a merchant advocate in the process. Mm-hmm. So, and we saw the tremendous need among merchants, large and small, right. for a service that would solve these chargeback and fraud pain points, how to understand it, you know, the rules and regulations, and all of it. And that's why we started Chargeback Gurus, actually the the, the brand as a company in 2014. Uh huh. Okay. So we said we'll be one of the first to come to the market with a fully compliant solution. We'll address every everything we can about chargebacks and fraud. And so that by choosing chargeback gurus, our clients would get the most protection from chargebacks and fraud. And also, you know, we understand the perspective of the merchants too. We have faced our own chargebacks, right? Sure, so sure. we said, you know what? We want to be honest and transparent uh, to our merchants and clearly be their not just be their chargeback and fraud solution provider, but also their partner in payments mm-hmm. and, and solving their business challenges. So to this day, we're very passionate about educating ourselves and also our, our clients and other merchants about, you know how it is, the ever-changing payments regulations and how to navigate the compliance rules. Right, right. And 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 I think that's one of the main reasons our um, clients value our service. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would think so, and and it sounds to me that you, you know your breadth of breadth of experience would uh, would suggest that you have a, a really good handle on this. Maybe you could, you know, help educate our our listeners and tell us a little bit about you know what you're seeing in terms of chargeback trends, maybe the root causes, and even merchant attitudes. I mean, I think you you sort of alluded to that when you talked about the fact that merchants are kind of flying blind on on chargebacks, but you know, what are some of the root causes? What are some of the trends that you've seen? I mean, you've been at this now for, what, five years, I guess, right, or more? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, the Chargeback Gurus brand has been around for at least five years. Uh, but like you said, you know, chargebacks and fraud have been a, a part of the, the, you know, the business challenges we have faced since ever we start entering, you know, into the business world. And when you start accepting card not present payments, whether it's online or on the phone or mobile, you know, everybody's going to face this. So that's, right. that's an excellent question that you did ask us to right now. Well, um, I can tell you that 
because we started so early in this industry, um, we are a pioneer in using data analytics to mm. identify chargeback and fraud trends across uh -huh. many verticals. Because um, when we first started our business, uh, we saw more number of chargebacks in card present transactions, right? This was before EMV. Mm -hmm. And after the introduction of EMV, we've seen a huge spike in chargebacks and fraud in the card not present world. Sure. And also, uh, true criminal fraud was also high before EMV. Right. And now the shift, you know, for the last many, many years, it's been shifting more towards friendly fraud. Oh, and, and can it, you can you explain a little bit more for our listeners? Because we, you know, I hear. I that, was just going to ask that same question. I hear that term a lot, and uh, I I think I know what it means, but I'm not sure. Can you, what does that mean? What's what's the difference between friendly fraud and criminal fraud? Right. You know, I think friendly fraud is a misnomer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not very friendly. <laughs> I would have named it the most unfriendliest fraud ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. If the, you know, if I could have named it, because friendly fraud is when a customer files a dispute, even though they may be aware of the transaction, whether it may be deliberate or not. Uh huh. Right. I think uh, I think the term I've heard that I like the best is legalized shoplifting. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, if you walk into a store, you know, if you shoplift, you're caught like that. But in the car not present world, oof, the stories I hear. So, so would it be sort of like I I had a friend not long ago was 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 complaining her son had gone online and ordered a bunch of games using her credit card and. You know, she called up the credit card company and said, I don't know what these charges are. And they're like, what, well, do you have a teenage son? Uh, right. <laughs> is right. that kind of what you're talking about? Is that friendly fraud or is it even more definitely. nefarious? That, that, that's definitely friendly fraud. Yeah. 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 Just, you know, it's so hard to predict human behavior and intention mm -hmm. because when there's a case of friendly fraud, before the friendly fraud dispute happens, of course, it's an actual regular person like you and me. Right. And even if you have a fraud prevention tool, the, the dupe can predict your, you know, it's it's that person. They, everything sure. checks out on paper. Right. So that's why it's one of the toughest types of chargebacks to, so to then identify. I, I, that's one of the root causes of chargebacks. Yeah, and I, back to your question. I guess what you're saying is when that kind of thing happens, it's friendly fraud. That's what you're saying about, you know, keeping documentation and things in writing and, you know, records, because at that point, the only way to fight it is to actually have proof that this person really did purchase and use your product or service, right? Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I guess that's the first uh, kind of fraud I also face when I face my own chargeback, friendly fraud. It was yeah. from a customer I had signed up. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, 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 now you, you know, obviously, as you've, as you, as you noted, you know, a lot more of, of chargebacks are now in the card not present environment. But is it, are, are chargebacks uh, a, a bigger problem in high risk uh, merchant categories generally? Or, or generally, yes, definitely. Um, th that's why they're considered high risk. Um, mm -hmm. High-risk merchants can fall into the high-risk category for many reasons, including sometimes just by virtue of being in an industry that's considered high-risk. Right. Or they may have continuity sales online for certain types of products, or they may do trial sales and, and things of that nature. So mm -hmm. anytime there's a higher risk for chargebacks and fraud, mm -hmm. they would be considered high-risk. Now, are there any particular you know, merchant verticals that where it is particularly higher. I mean, not just the high risk versus low risk or high, medium, low. I mean, in, in terms of, you know, like I, something that jumps to mind to me would be like dating websites or gambling websites or things like that. Or, are you seeing right. particular trends like that? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we have seen industries, uh, travel industry is very vulnerable for chargebacks. Uh -huh. uh, we have seen uh, phone order merchants, they are very vulnerable for chargebacks because they don't have uh, any data that can actually tell the issuer that, oh, I have conveyed all my uh, you know, business processes, refunds, et cetera. So it can be he said and she said. So Could it also be, I mean, when you say phone order, it just strikes me, I, you know, sometimes at night when I'm flipping around on cable, I come onto mm -hmm. those, you know, those site, you know, the channels where they're selling infomercials. Oh, yes. Right? The daily shopping channels. Yeah, yes. I would seem to me that, that would, I could see that where somebody's like late at night, had a few too many drinks. Yes. Oh, yeah, that looks cool. going to buy that and then have buyer's remorse the next day, buyer's right? Remorse. Yes, you're absolutely right on, 
right on point. And also we have seen high number of chargebacks with the health and beauty industry. Oh, really? Uh, yes, uh, because people buy skincare products. Uh, they have buyer's remorse or uh, merchants who do uh, continuity billing. They are being billed automatically. Mm -hmm. So those businesses are very vulnerable for chargebacks. Sure. And also, uh, lately we are seeing insurance companies facing high number of chargebacks as well. Really? Interesting. Hmm. It's very interesting. I mean, the insurance can be anything in general. We are talking about health insurance. We are talking about auto uh, insurance. Or, right. Uh, yeah, it, it could be like, you know, uh, I mean, telemedicine insurance. Mm -hmm. So we have seen chargebacks about like 1% to 2%. And also, especially uh, luxury goods. You sure. Know, uh, I mean, people buy these products, they call their bank, file a dispute, and then we could see them selling an eBay immediately. Oh, because, wow. Oh, they got their money, and then they are also going to make additional money by selling it on eBay for less. Man, it amazes me how people think them sometimes. You know, uh, you guys remember it was such a big deal for a while that people would go on eBay and buy flat screen TVs that they knew uh, Walmart sold, and then they would bring them back and get store credit. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, like it's kind of like that, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons now the card present merchants, the 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 retail stores, they made it mandatory to bring the receipt. Right. Because they uh -huh. know that this fraud has been going on yep. for a long time. Right. So they changed their policy right now. Yeah, they finally had to close that, that loophole because it's just sad that people were just taking advantage of it too much, you know? I always It always makes me – I remember many, many years ago um, when uh, DV, DVDs and those little DVD players first came out. Right. Right. I was on an airplane one day, and this woman sitting next to me had one of those little DVD players she was setting up for her daughter. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Where'd you get that? And she said, Walmart. I'm like, oh, really? What did it cost? <laughs> She's like, oh, I don't know. I'm taking it back after the vacation's over. I'm oh like, my I'm like, oh yeah. my God! You just admitted to me that you're right in, in front of yeah. the, in front of her daughter, teaching great values, there. great values to your kid. And you're happy about it, right? Right. I mean, that was exactly my thought. Like, what kind of what right. kind example of lesson are you setting here? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know that probably that you know why Costco changed the return policy all those uh, years ago. Yeah, right? I I suspect it's a very generous policy, and then LLB did the same thing. It's yeah, it's just amazing how they how they do that. Um, you know how how it's sort of like they catch up, take it takes the merchants a little bit of time to catch up to the fraudsters and right. until they find the next uh, avenue. And you know what? Avenue. You know what's interesting? Note, can I tell you a short? Yeah, story? go ahead, oh, please. Uh, a diamond merchant. Ha <laughs> ha. The diamond merchant actually had um, a customer who got uh, a diamond product. I think it's a, it was a bracelet. It was for like 20 grand. Wow. And they came to us after they got a dispute. The, the bad story was the, the, the they gave a, another discount to the customer because the customer wanted to return the product. The customer took the discount, returned the product, and then um, asked for a refund. And the merchant found out that it was actually an exact replica. Fake. Whoa. Wow. And the merchant refused to give the money back. And then guess what? They got a dispute. Uh-huh. Now the merchant came to us asking for help. Like, how do I fight this? I have all the evidence. So we helped them fight the chargeback and win it back. And then we also helped them, you know, analyze and institute new, better returns processes mm -hmm. so that they could protect themselves. Right. And that's another thing we do. We don't just go in and fight chargebacks because to me, the best chargeback is uh, the one that never happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my, our motto is prevent what you can fight what you can't. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. So we help our merchants, uh, to also identify these root causes, like I mentioned, whether it's friendly fraud and another uh, main root cause would be true criminal fraud. You know, this is where you have criminals targeting consumers and businesses. Um, and the third category would be merchant error. Right. Because obviously, you know, every company could always improve. So we go and analyze their processes and their business procedures and then identify, when we identify these root causes, we also give them data and insights into how they can improve their processes. Mm, for instance, you know, you could have a call center agent promising a lot of refunds, but not actually refunding a customer. Right, not putting what? the paperwork in. Right, right. right. So things like that could go wrong, and so we help them, we help our merchants identify root causes and also help them give them actionable insights mm, so mm -hmm. that they can uh, make intelligent business decisions. So um, actually, that's that's probably I wanted to, if you didn't mind, I wanted to segue real quickly into Visa and Mastercard because I know when I met Suresh, he was talking about 
the new uh, chargeback rules. And I was hoping maybe you can, uh, you know, I know there's been a lot of changes in the processes. Maybe you can give our listeners a, a high-level overview of what some of the major changes are um, in the chargeback claims process. Absolutely. Well, uh, Patty, that's a very timely and relevant question, I think. Uh, I like to have them that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So we have been working very closely with the card networks in understanding the latest changes in rules and regulations, uh, because sometimes uh, they release a 300, 400-page document and expect you to identify the changes, which can be very tedious and Mm -hmm. challenging uh, for an average merchant. So uh, we also work with our merchants to understand and implement the latest changes so that they can be in compliance with the new changes and mandates. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, I was talking about the VCR changes at NEAA. Uh, that's where I met Patty. Mm-hmm. And I had almost 30, 40 people standing outside the room asking me questions and asking me questions about like how this affects my business. What can I do? I was never informed by my payment processor. What do I need to do to stay in compliance? Right, so, right. And I can attest to the fact that he was fielding a ton of questions after yeah, that presentation. Yeah, it's a big area of confusion for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So Visa and MasterCard, they want to simplify the complex dispute process. That's the whole objective of actually them releasing these new policy changes and mandates so that they can keep the customer, the merchant, the issuer, and the acquirer, everybody happy. As a result, you know, merchants are required, you know, with the new changes, uh, with the new VCR changes, the merchants are requested to file the dispute response within 18 to 24 days so that case decisions can be made faster. Now, that's 18 to 24 days of being of the chargeback actually being initiated. initiated? Okay. Yes, correct. So previously, the case, uh, you know, uh, we used to wait for like 60 to even um, 90 days to get a case update. But now we are able to see these case updates coming in in less than two weeks, three weeks period. Wow. So that, that's, a, that's a great change. Sure. And also now merchants are required to acknowledge chargebacks, whether they dispute them or not. They still have to go and acknowledge it. Right. And if they do not acknowledge it, then there is going to be a penalty. Mm-hmm. Do you, also, do you guys find that do you guys find that there's a problem where a lot of times the processing company that's actually sending the notification, you know, won't send it out in a timely fashion, and so then the merchant can't even like doesn't really even have time to respond to these things. That's a great question. So most of the payment processes have upgraded their system right now, so merchants can actually view their chargebacks online. They don't have to wait for the physical letters to come to their office. So, uh, I mean, either they are not aware of it, the merchant is not aware of it, or the merchant processor has not keep them updated. So the right. merchant has called them and just activate the online portal so that they can manage the disputes online. And I'm guessing I, they would need some kind of an email alert or something so they would know a new dispute or a new chargeback is in there. Absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. So this is part of the automated systems that the ISO, that the big ISOs and the acquirers are putting in place. I know I've, I've read a lot about those. Is that That's what you're right. saying? Yes, mm-hmm. because Visa, MasterCard, they want the merchants to know immediately when a dispute happens. And sometimes uh, in the olden days, when it's a holiday season, you will never even see the dispute letter. Until they after it's over. They get mail or they get lost. Yeah. Right, sure. Yeah, and also MasterCard has launched new regulations, you know, uh, for merchants who do recurring billing and especially the trial order merchants. We all have seen uh, lately in the news that MasterCard is doing an audit and they're making changes for merchants who are selling trial orders, meaning right. you try the product for free and then we will bill you later on if you like it. So that industry had a heavy implication with the new MasterCard rule. So we have published e-guides and white papers that not only explains these uh, payment compliance and regulations, it also explains in simple terms what the merchants have to do to stay in compliance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we have also had uh, tons of positive feedback from, you know, editors, uh, merchants, uh, banks, and payment processors for simplifying the 400-page Gorilla Manual mm-hmm. launch released by Visa and MasterCard into simple guides that an average merchant can understand. That's great. You know, uh, and... Uh, we are actually experts in understanding and interpreting these complex mandates so that, you know, our average merchants can understand and implement them right away, you know. Right. And uh, because of this, actually, uh, I have been personally invited to speak at the MAG show and SCA show because they all understand 
these mandates and changes are so complex and they couldn't understand that. Right, right. You know, and, and part of our job is we have uh, subject matter experts in our office and they constantly keep looking for changes and mandates from all the four networks. Mm-hmm. And have you the know, other networks have, I know Visa and MasterCard have each done something on this in the last year. What about American Express and Discover? Have they made similar changes? Absolutely. They are actually planning on uh, launching similar changes in the coming months. Uh, I work closely with American Express. I consult with them as well. So, uh, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to get some of these policy updates they are planning on rolling out. So they are making some changes to simplify the dispute process and also to eliminate the confusion that goes on between the issuers and the acquirers. Mm-hmm. But with American Express, they are a closed loop. So right, and Discover yeah. also, sure. Exactly, and they are far more effective in launching these mandates and also making sure these mandates actually are fully in effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what have you seen? What, if any, um, impacts have you witnessed as a result of these changes? I mean, I know the visa changes have been in effect for probably about 10 months now. MasterCard yes. a little bit less. Uh, uh-huh. Obviously, you have some track record. Can you, can you share with us some of, the, some of what you've seen? Absolutely. Well, I can tell you this. There are going to be more changes in the next five years than what we have seen in the last 50 years combined. Really? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, at our company, as I said, uh, we have subject matter experts who are constantly keeping up with the ever-changing rules and regulations. And that's one of the reasons why our merchants view as their trusted advisors and rely on us to keep them informed and compliant. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these changes are mainly geared towards helping merchants mitigate fraud and chargebacks in the card-not-present environment. I see most of these changes are more towards the card-not-present. Yeah, that's what I, that's been my sense as well. Absolutely. Now, the number one impact that we have seen is a reduction of 15 to 18% uh, chargeback volume. We have seen a 15 to 18% reduction due to the VCR mandate. And the VCR, just so for our listeners, if you could just, that's Visa Chargeback Resolution, is that what it is? Visa Claims Resolution. Claims Resolution. This was the new change that was introduced by Visa. Last April, April, right? 2018. Right. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. And so. uh, the number two uh, impact that we have seen is uh, we have experienced 13% reduction in fraud claim disputes. Wow. Absolutely. That's huge. Also, you know, uh, these chargeback cases are getting resolved much faster than before. Like how much faster? I mean, I presume... Uh, I mean, I'm talking about we are able to see uh, case results in less than two weeks. Wow. Previously, it used to take like anywhere between uh, 60 to 90 days, but we are able to see results in less than two weeks. So this is a great process change that Visa has implemented, and they are working very closely with us as well as with other uh, enterprise merchants in simplifying this process and making it more efficient. And that's and that's what's compressing the time, is, it, is that the process has been streamlined and simplified? They are getting better. We yeah. can see that. I mm-hmm. mean, every month it's getting better. There mm-hmm. are new modules launched. There are new updates being made. Uh-huh. So they are very diligently working and helping the merchants, you know, combat this complex uh, chargeback dispute resolution. Okay. Okay. Very uh, interesting. And also, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, I'm, go ahead. And also, what I have seen is they are very open and receptive in consulting with us. Uh, you know, I'm very grateful that, you know, not only we are being consulted by the merchants, but also by the card networks to come up with effective solutions to mitigate chargebacks and fraud. You know, um, we have been viewed as a trusted advisor by both the merchants and the card networks, and, and, and which I feel it's truly a blessing for us. Now, and, and I know that you and I have discussed this, but again, if you can help um, help James and our listeners understand, I mean, you don't you work with the merchants as well as through ISOs and acquirers. Can you kind of explain your your business model there? Absolutely. That's a great question. Yes, we work directly with merchants and also with our payments industry partners who are really very, very important to us. So acquirers, uh, payment processors, and ISOs um, come to us because they rely on us um, to keep their merchants informed and compliant. Right? Uh-huh. So first of all, as I told you before, we are merchant advocates and we passionately believe in education. Mm-hmm. I can understand the merchant's perspective because I've, you know, You've I, been I there. know right. the pain. Right. And also, Everybody in this industry is so great because we are we all value education, right? That's why we go to these trade shows, conferences. We are constantly educating ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in our, you know, 
as, as uh, one of the leaders in the company, I'm very passionate about educational materials on our websites, through emails. Anytime somebody has a question, we always reach out and do our best to provide information that we can. We also conduct uh, webinars, publish e-guides, white papers, etc., to help our partners and their clients understand the complex of world of payments. Sure, sure. Basically, you know, nowadays merchants are looking for payments partners that can get them not only get the merchant accounts, but also help them solve their payments challenges. Right, right. You know, and as everyone knows, there's fierce competition to acquire and retain merchants. So in order to differentiate themselves, I think acquirers and payment processors need to provide value-added services mm-hmm. in addition to getting them merchant accounts and best rates and all of those other things. Right? Right, right. So, so go ahead, go ahead. Oh, so at our company, we, we work with our payments industry partners closely, okay, not only to solve the, their clients' chargeback and fraud challenges, but also anytime they have payments pain points, they can come to us for guidance and advice and solutions. Uh-huh. For instance, um, one of our partners had a client with a very high decline rate and, and false positives, and they were not they were not able to identify how to solve those challenges. So we work with their clients in identifying the root causes of their high decline rates and false positives. Right. And based on our analysis, and, and we're big on data analytics and data science um, and understanding, and also human expertise, right? So in our company, we combine technology with human expertise. So we were able to work with the client and find actionable solutions that they could implement right away. So that way, it was a win-win for everyone. So could give me an example of, a, of an actionable solution, maybe, you know, just an example of where that might, how that might play out? Uh, for instance, you know, um, we also look at chargeback and fraud trends over a period of time. Right? Uh-huh. So for instance, you know, a, a client had multiple product lines, and this was, um, they had skincare products. Okay. And we noticed, you know, let's say in the last three months, they had a spike in chargebacks for a specific product. And when we talked to them about it, asked them, did you make any specific changes to product, whether it's marketing or sales or, you know, customer service or anything in between? Right. At first, they were not sure. Then somebody said, oh, yeah, we changed our market manufacturing plant. We moved from the U.S. to China. Uh-huh. Uh, but we didn't, it was the same formula. They thought it was the same ingredients, same packaging, same everything. But we're like, oh, okay, if there's no other change, that is a big change. So you need to listen to your customers. Maybe the product is not working as well as it used to. Mm -hmm. Something Mm -hmm. is different. So why don't you bring it back in-house to the U.S.? Right. Try it, you know, do it, and we'll we'll wait a few months. Look at the, you know, patterns again. Right. And and we'll decide. And then they brought it in-house. You know, uh, for the next three months or so, we were able to track, again, their chargeback trends and fraud trends and all of those. And... That was the main reason. Huh. Huh. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, so very you guys are. So every, to me, every chargeback tells a story. Right. Yeah. Us to figure it out. And sure. the chargeback is not just a one percent problem in your business. You know, it can point. It can give you actionable insights into almost every aspect of your business. Sure. So as far as like the ISOs and acquirers, you guys partner with them primarily as like a consultancy, or is there like a technology? piece where you're like charging per merchant for them to like tie in their data or like what do you guys actually do with the ISOs? That's a great question. Um, So what we do is actually we work with them on a consulting basis if there is a payment challenge. For example, as we mentioned that there was a merchant who had a high false positive rate because they were setting up all their filters actually on the fraud prevention side. So it was penalizing regular customers. So they had a high decline rate. So Mm -hmm. we actually came, worked with them, we optimized the filter, (laughs) then we reduced their false positive rate. So that's a consulting part that we do when we work with ISOs. But the other part that the ISOs heavily rely on us is our chargeback prevention and our chargeback representment tool. So what we have done is actually most of the time when we uh, talk to ISOs to find out why is it you're not working with anybody, was that a challenge? Most of them have conveyed to us the biggest challenge when I work with a chargeback prevention or a representative partner is their onboarding process is so complicated. It takes so much time. We need to provide them a lot of information, and I'm not interested in doing it because I don't have the time to do it, Sure. which, I, which we totally understand. So we have actually introduced a seamless onboarding tool for all our ISOs so that they can actually onboard their clients with the click of a button and the service will be offered to their merchants. 
there is no IT configuration needed. Uh, there is no complex process involved because we know what it takes to acquire a merchant and to grow their business. Sure. So this is actually an additional value-added services, but they cannot afford to spend 30, 40, 50% of their time in right. working with us. So we made our onboarding so easy. So if a partner or if it is an ISO or if it is a payment broker who want their merchants to have their chargebacks and fraud under control, they can onboard us with a click of a button and we will take care of them and then we will make sure the ISO is informed. It's all online. They don't have to check with us as to whether we work with the client or not. They are actually informed automatically and we made it so seamless that a lot of ISOs and payment processes are working with us right now in helping their merchants. Hmm. Very interesting. Cool. So what the so so in those cases then then if the if the merchant has a chargeback, uh, basically the ISO or the or the agent just goes into the portal and, and starts the process. Yep, absolutely. So we have a simple uh, merchant agreement, and then the ISO has to fill that, upload it in our system, and that's about it. And we will take care of the rest. Wow, very cool. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess uh, that my, my, my last question here, I think you've kind of answered it, but maybe just to kind of swing back around, you know, what steps would you suggest that ISOs, acquirers, agents take to help merchants cope with chargebacks, and, and particularly in, the, in this new rule scenario? Well, well, most of the time when a payment processor is being approached by the merchant saying, I have a fraud and chargeback challenge, the usual cliche answer I have seen is, oh, just activate your AVS and CVV in your gateway and that should solve the problem. Yeah, right. But most of the time it doesn't. Uh, right. Because if you don't even know where the problem is, then right. how can you solve it? Right. Like you're trying to throw everything on the wall and expect something to stick, but that's <laughs> not our actually usual way of approaching a problem. We are big on data science and analytics, and we want to make sure when we make recommendations, we know exactly where the problem is. Uh -huh. I'm not going to a doctor who is going to prescribe me without even me telling what the problem is. Right, sure. You know, that's the same approach we take when it comes to our product and service and the consultation that we provide. So uh, for all the ISOs and, you know, payment partners and, uh, you know, merchant processors, Sometimes they don't actually look at the fraud and chargeback challenge. I don't. I normally recommend them don't expect the merchant to come to you with a problem. You have their account. Right. You know what their chargebacks are. You know their chargeback threshold. If you see that something is abnormal, something is alarming, reach out to your merchant because they might be busy in their business. Mm -hmm. When you reach out to them, it gives them an impression that you really care for their business. Sure. Yeah. You know, reach out to them and then partner with subject matter experts who can actually solve the problem for you. I mean, everybody knows you cannot be a master at everything. If right. you don't know uh, the pro the solution to a problem, partner with subject matter experts who can solve the problem for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, when the merchant knows, you know what, this guy is so reliable, I can call him or he's constantly uh, on the lookout for my business. And even if he's being approached by another payment processor who's gonna offer better rates, he's not gonna move. Right, right. He's going to say, you know what, this processor, this partner is providing so much value, I'm not willing to take a chance with anybody else. Excellent, excellent. Well, this has been very, very enlightening, folks. Um, for our listeners, I uh, was hoping you can uh, tell us, you know, let everybody know if they're interested in, in talking with you, working with you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? So they can always reach out to our website. Um, you know, we have our phone number listed there. Uh, chargebackgurus.com is our website and our phone number is 866-999-3758 uh, or they can always actually send an email to win, W-I-N at chargebackgurus.com and we normally respond in less than three to four hours. We are very uh, prompt in responding to those so that's the best way for them to reach out to us. Awesome. Well, awesome. Great information today. Thank you so much. This has very, been very enlightening and I, uh, I think our listeners will agree. Thank you so much, you know, for inviting us to your show. And I am looking forward to listening to more of your podcast because uh, there are a lot of great educational information. I was listening to two podcasts yesterday and uh, there was one uh, uh, partner talking about cash advance. That was very enlightening to know about how the cash advance program works. Ah, uh, so, yes, right. Mm -hmm. Great. Absolutely. So what you guys are doing is truly amazing. 
uh, you know, we are very excited, you know, to be a part of, uh, you know, Greensheet. Uh, and if there is any information that you need from us, feel free to reach out to us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you both. Thank you. Glad to be on the show. Thank you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. I want to share with you today the latest data on payments in America, compliments of the Federal Reserve. You know, the Fed conducts comprehensive studies of non-cash payments, that being cards, ACH, and check, every three years and reports supplementary data in the intervening years. The last study was published back in 2017 and contained data from 2016. And uh, last month, the Fed uh, released its Payment Study 2018 Annual Supplement, which re- includes new data from 2017. Nice. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, as data from this kind of stuff goes, it's pretty current. Sure. Um, Plus the government's always great at naming things. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a real barn burner. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> So among the top-line findings, electronic card payments continue to accelerate while check usage continues to decline, at least among consumers. No surprise. No surprise there. And ATM transactions are also down, which I was a little surprised by. Now, the sum of all credit, debit, and prepaid card payments grew by $11.3 billion between 2016 and 2017 to total $123.5 billion, according to the Fed. The total value of card payments in 2017 was $6.5 trillion, up from $6 trillion in 2016, which I think is a pretty large... Wow, wait, say that again? Okay, so we grew total payments, the value of okay. total... Of total electronic payments or just total payments? Card payments. Card payments. Card payments, credit okay. and debit and prepaid. All right. Okay. Uh, $6.5 trillion. In 2017. In 2017. Right. Up from $6 trillion in 2016. That's insane. Isn't it? That's huge. It's huge, which to me, well, I mean. That's a 9% increase year right. over year. Which is higher, far much than, far higher than wow. GDP rose. Oh, my. I mean, not even, yeah. I mean, we read a lot during 2017 and 2018 about how consumer spending was up. Right. I mean, I would imagine even if you if you looked at GDP growth and inflation and put those two together, you're, you're still, still talking, talking about maybe seven percent, at least maybe. five. But yeah, yeah so, and that's a lot. So that's a lot, which I think suggests that more payments are going to cards. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. I thought that was a, that, that number really jumped out at me. And so here's what the Fed had to say, quote, the increase in the number of card payments in 2017 was boosted by continued strong growth in the number of card payments made remotely, including shopping and bill payments, so card-not-present transactions. Okay. Uh, The number of these card-not-present transactions grew 22.8%. Year over year. Year over year. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And that's compared to a 7.2% increase in card-present transactions. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So there was a really big. The big push was yeah, n- was in the right. card not and present. And so of course the card not present would have been the smaller of the two to begin with. Right. So the percentage growth there in real dollars would be, be as much. But 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 still. Yeah. Wow. Though that's uh that doesn't surprise me. I I guess what's interesting about that to me is I I'm not surprised that the card not present transactions grew a lot. Right. I've just thought that that was all card present moving to card not present. No. But it's actually card not present is creating new markets. New markets. That people are using cards for that they previously weren't. Weren't using. Exactly. Very interesting. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. It just makes sense. I mean, even if you think about apps like... um, uh, what's the I forgot blanking. What's so you have uh you know Uber right uh, Lyft right. What's, what's the one for houses where you go to stay? I just used it the uh, other day. Uh, yeah. Everybody uh, on the podcast. Airbnb. Is Airbnb. There you go. But like Airbnb, I mean, there like there's a good market where with Airbnb, I would say I would be willing to bet that ninety percent five years ago ninety percent of vacation rentals were paid for via check. Right. You know. Sure. Now everybody's using Airbnb and they're using their card. Exactly. So and, you know, uh, it's markets like that. Probably. And the and the food delivery services. You know, I, I, uh, I we just got Uber Eats. Right. We have those in yeah. Frederick, and then there's the Grubhub or Grubhub, something like yep, that. Yeah. I see a lot of those. Sure. Going around, and I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the growth. And again, right. that's going to be a car, even though you're delivering it, 
It's right. a card, not present transaction. Of course, yeah, right? and I, so it's basically all the smartphone stuff where people are, if they're going to use their phone, you obviously can't pay cash on your phone. Of course not, so, right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and this was interesting, too, is that, you know, in terms of the value of these card, not present transactions, mm-hmm. 14% increase versus 4%. For card present. This is like the average ticket. Average ticket. I see. So I thought again. Hmm. I think that that speaks to things like these Airbnb. Yeah, it's larger. Type of thing, right. 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 Yeah, much larger ticket. Uh, ticket. Very value. very interesting. Yeah. Huh. So so here's what the Fed said. Uh, quote: The number of in-person chip authenticated card payments also recorded a noteworthy gain in 2017, increasing to 41 percent of. All in-person general-purpose card payments in 2017. And 2017, I'm sorry. Yeah. Wow. So shows that the chip card has really taken off. And I have to admit, my anecdote anecdotally, mm-hmm. you know, two years ago, yeah, I'd have to always go. Do you have the chip? No, swipe it. Right. And yeah. now that's got to be. I wonder, 2018 got to be 60 percent. I bet you we have to be up there yeah. because one of the things mm-hmm. that you and I have spoke about in the past is we have a regional chain here called Sheets, right? In right. Maryland yep. and Pennsylvania. Yep. And Sheets has um, always, I mean, they haven't gone to the chip, right? but I'm noticing now, now more and more of the Sheets mm. around me are yep. chips. All the, all the ones in our in the Altoona here, they, yeah. they all have them now. I so. was really surprised. On my way here, I stopped at one of the Sheets that's a brand new one. They tore down right. the old one and put up the new one. Right. And, oh, my God, they had the Apple Pay thing yeah. out. Oh, they, yeah. You know, I'm oh like, yeah. where's the ATM? Because... <laughs> <Right, laughs> That used to be front and center. You walked right. in, there was the ATM. Yep. Now it's like pushed in the back in the of the back. store. Yep. Uh, but anyway, so. It's almost like they want you to walk through all the aisles and buy a candy bar, you know? Yeah, right. On your way to the ATM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. In fact, that's what I thought about. I was like walking yeah. to the ATM. It's like, oh, chips, candy bars. Right. 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 But uh, so anyway, you know, for the first time, the Fed said that chip authenticated payments captured more than half of the value of in-person transactions. Oh, so a lot of people that were using up with a larger transaction, they want to make sure they're using their chip. Exactly. And a lot of the small ticket places, they haven't set up the chip card Because it's not as important. Exactly. For them, a chargeback, that's the only risk for them is chargeback loss. Well, who cares? $6. $6. $6, right? right? Okay, interesting. Okay, so at 10.5% prepaid debit cards registered the fastest growth rate between 2016 and 2017. Um, followed by debit cards, which we said was about 10%, and credit cards. But credit cards saw the most growth in terms of value, uh, registering 10% growth between 16 and 17. Um, the average debit card payment in 2017 was $35, which yeah. was actually down from 36 But I don't think that's... Interesting. Yeah. You know. Not significant. Not significant enough. But... Um, and the average prepaid card transaction w- went fell to twenty three dollars in twenty seventeen from twenty five, in twenty sixteen. Huh. But the average credit card payment was relatively unchanged at eighty eight dollars. Very interesting. Which I think really goes to that idea of people are using their debit cards more and more as a cash replacement. Yeah. And they're still using their credit cards for things that, mm, you know, maybe. They don't have the money right today, but they'll have the money in in yeah, next payday. You know what's interesting too? That also has some very interesting surcharge implications. Too. I think so. You yeah. know, when you think about the way that you're, you know, I think one thing our industry is, as I'm talking to ISOs, uh, just the other day, so we have a, a really big uh, ISO that's using our quote tool, and so we were setting up the Schedule A for them and all that, mm-hmm. and they're doing surcharging. Right. Actually, through CardX. Okay. Um, and it was just funny having these conversations because I think people dramatically underestimate the complexity of surcharge pricing. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, with cash discounting, it's like, oh, it's 3.99% or 3.5% or whatever for everything. Right. With surcharging, it ha- it's literally by vertical. It has to change a little bit. Yes. You know, I mean, you can make one if you want to, but like the, what happened was, so this is the funny thing. So I get an email from the, you know, VP of sales or whatever, you know, uh, including one of the agents that was using the tool. And he's like, mm-hmm. hey, we tried to run this on Interchange Plus and we ran it on surcharging and they were both saving the merchant the exact same amount of money you know, what's wrong with your tool? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's your tool, of course. <laughs> right? Right. And so I, I logged in and looked at him, and I said, well, yeah, but do you notice how the surcharging is going to pay out $260 a month in residual, and the Interchange Plus was going to pay out 80 The savings for the merchant was the same. Wow. But because of the pricing uh-huh. with surcharging, it's a little bit more complex. Right. And this goes to show why, because, you know, if you're talking about, you know, you're splitting, with surcharging, you're splitting these two things up. Yeah. Right. And you're saying we're only adding the fee on these transactions. Well, the ones you're adding the fee to, when the average ticket is is 
double, almost triple. Triple. Then it makes a big difference what your per item costs are, and mm-hmm. it makes it you know what I mean. All these things matter. Oh yeah. And and by business type, you know, you have a business that does a five hundred dollar average ticket size. It's very different than one that has a four dollar average ticket mm-hmm. size. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but yeah. that is that's very interesting. I, I I have to think about that some more because that has some very interesting. I think implications. it has some very interesting ap- implications. Yeah. You know, uh, and then just the Fed also noted that uh, uh, payments through the automated clearinghouse grew by about five point seven percent. That's interesting, too. That's significant. That's significant. So this is, for people who don't know, this is electronic check. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Electronic check, direct deposit, things yeah. like that. Um, and um, let's see. Check payments declined by 4.8% by number, but the total value increased by 7.5%. And that's, I think, because more businesses are writing checks than consumers. So the total, but yeah, but it's not just the average ticket size. It's the total value. Total value, which suggests that the average check, and actually the average check did go up from um, something like $1,003 to $1,017 or something to that effect. That's the average check, which again, I think speaks more to businesses than consumers. I yeah. think there's just a huge opportunity there. Somebody is, you know, to me, the B2B space mm-hmm. is really ripe for innovation. So ripe for innovation. It's like everybody's focused on consumer to business. And that's not, that's just a small piece of the total pie. Well, but not only that, but it's already had so much innovation there. Yes, You exactly. know, whereas B2B, I mean, what's what's new about the way businesses transact payments in the last 10 years? I mean, really. Well, you know, the biggest reason, and I've, I've discussed this in some other settings as well, you know, one of the things you have to look at when you're looking at businesses yeah. is that, you know, there's in, in the payments world, there's something called the credit push model. Right. Or the debit pull model, right? Mm, sure. Okay. The debit pull model is a check model, mm-hmm. and businesses are used to a debit pull model. Yeah. Right. And everything that in is out in the world right now in terms of innovating in the B two B space right. is trying to trying to force them into a credit push. Sure. Peg. You know, it's like putting a square peg into a round hole. Right. You have yeah. o- they have all these systems and processes set up around this debit pull model. Yeah. And, you know, faster ACH. Right. That's their their systems aren't set up for the ACH. They yeah. aren't, you know, which is why I personally think electronic check yeah. is going to be the innovation for B2B space. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to me. It's uh, almost in my mind I think about things like even even stuff that I'm not a big fan of like Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know that that there's so much about the network and the consumer and all that. But you know, really, I feel like it that level of innovation could actually work for B2B. Oh, it would work so remarkably for B2B. In fact, you know, I've talked with some some ISOs out and some payment companies that are in the um, cannabis space, for example. Right. Okay. They're already using blockchain technology for the manufacture, sure. cultivation, right. distribution. And they're saying, we just got to figure out a way to piggyback right. the payment on this same sure. technology. Yeah, and why not? You know, why not? They already, you know, yeah. in, in the cannabis world, for example, the way the state laws are, 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 these guys have to, they have to keep tabs from the, from the they call it from seed to sale. Mm. Every step along the way, that is regulated. Sure. Of course. So blockchain is a perfect application for that. And, right. and, you know, th- this is, you know, so you get have this perfect application and then you got to figure out a way to pay on the other end. Right. Right. Yeah. It really seems like almost something like even reserve accounts or something for mm-hmm. businesses where if there was one company that controlled these reserve accounts. Right. And you could hook it up to your bank, like like from my bank. I mean, I can send money from my bank to my parents bank account for sure. free. Right. So, can so I, yeah, I do so it all the time. It was like, why couldn't uh, somebody set up some kind of a program where they're like a bank that works with businesses on either side? Right. You can put reserve money in there for free, mm-hmm. and then it just costs you $7 every time you transfer money, and you can go with the 10000 Right. Uh, you know, I don't it, know. Is it is it that? Uh, that's really not that far removed from what, what PayPal does, for example. Yeah, exactly, except that they charge, like, you know, right, they charge, a lot. <laughs> but again, I mean, I collect yeah. my rent from my tenants from PayPal. They right. don't charge them or me. Oh, it's person to person. It's a person to person transaction. So it seems like somebody like a PayPal that would be a good c- type of company that mm-hmm. you know, or one of the acquirers in the industry that we know. Somebody should come up with something that's B two B. That's a big innovation that cuts costs, makes it more convenient, yes. more you, you can track everything, less risk. You know, right? Right. Uh, there's a lot of things that could be done there. There's I think. so much that can be done there. I, that, to me, that's where I see a lot of the future Stuff innovation. Yeah, interesting. So one other thing I want to talk about was sure. ATMs. Now, according to the Fed, ATM transactions fell about. 2.8% by number. And we're pretty flat. It was like a half a percent by value. Right. Okay. 
Now, I wanted to talk about that because 2019 marks the golden year for ATMs. The first ATMs rolled off a production line in Dayton, Ohio, hmm. back in 1969. Wow. Huh. And, uh, you know, and over the years, ATMs have become pretty much a cornerstone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I tell this joke. It's really funny. I mean, it's not a story that's really funny. My niece, who's now, I guess she must be 40 now, mm-hmm. um, but when she was young, she would come down and spend summers with me. Right. And I had this really cool thing called an ATM card. Right. And she lived in a small town in upstate New York. They hadn't seen ATMs yet. So we'd have this joke. I'd be like, hey, Carl, you want to go hit the wall? And that would be mean that I'd give her my card, and she'd, you know, she'd go run into the ATM and you know, put the card in, and she'd be so cool. Mommy, I went to the wall, and we took out money for Aunt Patty. You know? That's funny. <laughs> and it was. I mean, it was such a— Like a magic machine. It was a magic machine to her. And, of course, now she's you know, an adult and does right. mobile pay and everything right. else. But sure. at the time, it was such an ingenious thing. You yeah. know, Back in those days, ATMs were nothing more than an extension of bank branches, and most of the ATMs were on the outside walls. Right. banks sure you know um but they've evolved to become so ubiquitous far more ubiquitous than than banks yeah in fact p- today banks own the minority of all the deployed atms 192,000 of about 470,000 plus wow um are bank owned the two largest not bank are um owners of atms are cardtronics which mm-hmm. has 100,000 deployed wow and payment alliance international yeah which has about 70,000 deployed Wow. You know, and it's, it's probably also worth noting that uh, Payment Alliance International uh, sold off its, it, you know, it was a merchant process, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was an acquirer or, or super right. ISO, actually. Right. And it sold off its, uh, its, its credit card portfolio so it could focus Focused on ATMs. Just focused on ATMs. Yeah. You know, and today its ATM portfolio is almost as big as the total of ATMs deployed by the 10 largest ATM bank deployers in the country. Wow. You take all the, the 10 largest, B of A, mm-hmm. Chase, Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo. Sure. oh, I don't know, that's BB, BBBT, I think maybe, yeah, you yeah. know, a couple, you know, right. regionals, the top right? Ones. The top ones. All together, they have 78,000. Wow. So, I mean, that's a must be a pretty good business. I think the banks just really are, you know, they know their customers want it to a certain extent. Right. But I think the banks just hate the, it's it's like, it's one of the things where it's just not their business. It's just not. It's too far removed from their business. They it's, want to loan money and they and that's really. Well, it's like, you know, I, I bank with a credit union, right? right. Credit union is probably 40 miles from my house, but right. I get free ATM access. So what's the matter? Right. Who cares? Who cares? They'd rather just work with other networks. They would and, rather just yeah. work with other networks, yeah. you know, so. Now, according to a 2018 study conducted um, by the National ATM Council, more than two-thirds of ATMs deployed in the U.S. are at retail locations. Convenience stores and drug stores are the most common. Hmm. Um, But ATMs can also be found in a range of retail locations, as well as leisure, travel, and workplace locations. Right. Now, separately, a study by Transaction Network Services found that consumers count on ATMs working when they need them. And that we know, right? Right. And, and just to sort of put a number to that, four out of ten consumers surveyed said that if they went to an ATM and it wasn't working, they wouldn't go back to that ATM. Yeah. It's too risky. Too risky. That's well, true. I've, I found that to be true. I do, too. Mm-hmm. There's certain places where I just I don't. I just won't go. I just won't go. Yeah, there's one. There's actually a Sheets, the... Uh, closest one to our house where their ATM has been out of service a couple times, and if I need, ever need cash, I don't go there. Don't I'll, I'll pass it and go to somebody farther away. I, I have a similar situation yeah. with one of the ones I go to. It's uh, Royal Farms, I think. And yeah. I'll just, you know, I know if I just drive a half a mile down the road, there's one I always oh, work. It so. works. Yeah. So the uh, TNS study also found that consumers would like to do more than just withdraw cash and deposit checks at ATMs. 57% said they'd use an ATM if it had more alternative services. And this uh, I found really interesting. Forty-eight percent said they buy; they would be willing to buy lottery tickets from really? ATMs at the ATM. Yeah, maybe that's why Sheets has the lottery ticket machine right next to the you ATM. You know, I, I was thinking of that when yeah. I saw it this morning. I yeah. guess that's on people's minds when they get that cash out. Right, get the cash, go right to the. Can you can you not buy lottery tickets with a card? No, you have to use cash. Yeah, well, there to you use go. Cash. I guess that's why. The, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think in some places you can, but most of the places. I mean, right, I buy the right. scratch offs, and it's right, always right. like, oh, you got to pay <laughs> with cash. So, um, huh? But um. Here's what I thought was one of the more insightful tidbits to come from the TNS survey. 
62% of consumers say they are not bothered by ATM surcharges. Mm. That's, yeah. That's pretty significant, I think. They've gotten used to it. Yep. There's a cost to get your cash out. You know, we've talked about that before. People yep. are willing to pay for convenience. goes back to cash discounting. Yes, it does. And that's kind of where I wanted to come, come full go, circle on go this. Ahead. <laughs> you know, uh, surcharges, you know, are, uh, it's not a novel concept. They've been on ATMs for at least 20 years now. Right. And, uh, in fact, according to Bankrate, which keeps ta- – it's a, b- a website that keeps tabs on bank fees and so forth, the average ATM surcharge rose 19 times between 98 and 2018. Hmm. And in 2018, the average was $3.02. Wow. So, you know, the message I take away from all this is that, you know, even though total withdrawals may be dropping, um, ISOs and agents shouldn't ignore the revenue opportunities here. Of course. It's not dropping by that much. No, not dropping by that much. And I also think it's really a safe bet that ATMs are, are, can complement cash discounting programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that you have that option available. Right. I mean, because I was thinking about this myself. Uh, if I were going to a store and they offered me a cash discount, right? Right. Maybe I don't have all the cash on me. Right. But there's an ATM right outside, and I have to go to the grocery store after I'm done with this. Right. Might as well get out a couple hundred bucks, pay five dollars, three fifty. Pay three bucks, get my five hundred. Yeah. You know, get my hundred dollars. Right. You paid one point five percent, and you saved instead of paying four percent. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's so. that's very uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, just be so interesting to see how all that stuff plays out. It really will. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Thanks, Patty. Thank you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So I got an interesting question this week uh, from an agent in our six-week jumpstart program who asked me if I would cover this topic on the uh, uh, on the questions from the field. So I said, sure, why not? So the question basically revolved around, I was talking to him about, um, he's trying to get to the next level. So he has 187 merchants right now in his portfolio. Okay, Very that's good. a nice number. Yeah. 70, 80,000 a year in residual he's at. And um, he was trying to, he wants to get it to the next level. Mm-hmm. You know, he wants to get to 400. And um, so he's like, you know, what's, what's, what's my path? How, what do I need to do to get there? And so one of the first things I talked to him about is I said, you need to convert your job into a business. Right. And we talked about a couple things that I think are really interesting for our listeners, whether it's a, you're a small ISO or you're an uh, you know, a, a individual agent looking to grow and things like that. So the first thing we talked about is some of the practical things that people don't think about. Two in particular are how you get paid and where you go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a business, then when the business makes money, that doesn't necessarily mean that you make money. Right. And so one of the big problems, and it's so funny because our conversation, as ha- as happens often with me, it, it kind of conversation kind of got away from payments and actually into like marriage and like <laughs> family and like you know what I mean. But there's so many uh, parallels. There, oh my goodness! There? I mean, if your marriage is you know is a mess because of the way you're running your business, that is going to affect your business. You sure. know what I mean? Sure. And so what we were talking about is he said, you know, when we get paid money, my wife and I are like. We just got money, so we will spend it or we will do whatever mm, we're going to do. Mistake. And I said, no, 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 you are an employee of a business. What's your salary? Right. And so the problem is salespeople don't think about that, and there's, and there's a really good reason to structure it that way because if all the money that comes in goes to the business and then you get paid a weekly salary, mm-hmm. well, then it's going to, number one, put pressure on you to make sure you do bring in enough to cover your salary. Right. Maybe have a little cushion would be nice. Um, but then secondly, then you can do budgets and things like a normal person mm-hmm. would do because you mm-hmm. know I make $700 a week, I make $1,000 a week, whatever it is. Right. Then what you do is once a month, you do a calculation. So like friends, I'll give you an example. In our business, we have a calculation where we take our current bank balance mm-hmm. minus our cushion. We have a certain amount of money that we want to leave in there. Right. Um, we take that out. Then we look at our, you know, how we did for the month. And whatever's left over, we pay that out to myself and my business partner. Okay. So once a month, we get a profit bonus. Okay. But on a weekly basis, we get our salary. Right. 
So you look at those two things differently. Some months we're like, wow, that was an awesome month. We have a big bonus. We can do something cool with that. Some mm-hmm. months we don't, but we don't plan on that. We can make our budget and pay all of our bills based on our salary that we get. Right. And so I think a lot of salespeople would really benefit from setting something like that up. You know, I do that, that do a very similar thing with my business. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some months I, I pay myself, I'm able to pay myself a bonus. Some right. months I'm not, but I... You got to have some consistency. I have to have the, in order the budget every month. Right. And to, you know... Pass muster with the mortgage people. Right. I have to have a real salary. Yeah. And it helps. Uh, you mentioned the mortgage. It helps so much, too, when you're, people are like, oh, you're self-employed. Well, you just ruined your chances to get a car loan or yes, a mortgage. Right. When you're like, no, here's my W-2s. And that's exactly. I have to, you know, I don't say, yeah. I'm, when I, I say, no, I'm an uh, employee of Proscribe Zinc. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then once you set it, and it's really inexpensive. So you can use a payroll provider. Oh. We use a payroll provider. I use QuickBooks. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It costs 10 to 20 bucks a month. Yeah. And you just pay your, so, you know, setting it up that way is super important. Uh, let me move on to a couple of other ones real quick. Um, you might want to consider, if you have small kids at home, consider getting an office space. You'd yeah. be surprised how cheap it is. My goodness. You, the first office, I was telling this guy, I said, man, my first office, I paid $200 a month and then included utilities. Oh, nice. Now, I was in a ratty little room basically on the back of somebody's store. But, but it was a it separate was fine. Office, it was right? clean, and I I cleaned it up. I paint. We painted, cleaned it up. Um, I put my desk in there, and I was only in there for two three hours a day anyway because I'm out in the field selling. Right. So you know, I have a place like that. But every morning it was like I gotta leave. I'm going to the office. Right. You know, drop the kids off at school, and then I don't go back home. I go to the office. Right. And then I leave the office at five o'clock, mm-hmm. and I've done that ever since. And that just that structure of like I have somewhere where I go to work. And then I come home, that really helps my marriage, helps the communication of like, okay, I'm at work right now or I'm at home. And that helps me to kind of be able to switch between the two mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, clarify that in my mind. So sure. the two real practical things are that I'll give you a couple of the tips, but those are the two really practical ones is pay yourself a salary. So you have to cover your salary. You know, and again, maybe it's small in this. And maybe you can only afford, you're like, look, I'll pay myself $400 a week and then hopefully get a bonus at the end right. of the month. Right. Whatever you know, okay, this is what I can afford. And then you just got to make sure you make those sales. About it. Don't be realistic. Say, yeah, don't just say, "Oh, I'm going to pay right. myself a thousand dollars a week." You, you can know? really, you can really make things worse if you aren't realistic, because then your spouse or significant other is going to be counting on this weekly money. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of it, uh, on the good side, is if it's realistic, then you're going to remove so much financial stress and pressure from your relationship. Right. Because it's not about, "Oh, did you make enough sales this week to pay the mortgage?" Right. No, no, no. We have a we have a salary. We get paid every week, but then it's on you to make sure you actually have enough money in the business to pay that to salary. Pay that salary, sure. So you know, got to make it realistic. Um, and so that's really important. All right. So a couple of things that are that are more, uh, you know, a little more abstract, I guess, with it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really important is you have to start trusting other people to do things for you. Yes. And accept that they're not going to do them as well as you. Right. You know, because everybody has their own way of working. Exactly. And 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 again, it's like the biggest mistake I see people make is they try to scale. They try to hire mini me's. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to find somebody just as motivated and just as as knowledgeable and just as sharp as I am. And, you know, okay, well, they're going to cost you one hundred thousand dollars a year, two hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. That's not realistic. Right. You need to find somebody. Everybody has a different uh, everybody has a different concept of you know, success, Mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of people's successes, they want to have a steady job and they want to know exactly what they need to do every day. And they want to come into work and they want to do that work Mm -hmm. and they want to go home. They want to go home. And they don't want to be like you stressed out about your business 20 hours out of the day, like me and like everybody else. We're that's entrepreneur. You're a salesperson. You know, I'm always reading business books. You know, some people don't want to do that. If they, if they wanted to do that, maybe they'd be, you know, they'd be starting their own business. They'd be competing with you. Yeah, right. So you got to find people. And then again, you got to understand that they may not do it. They may not be as motivated or as excited that's okay that's not their value you know that's not their their values are different than yours right so you just have to then when you get those people in train 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 and more training and then more training after that and be really clear clear communication you know what needs to be done and really walk them through give them a little rope let them make mistakes again you can't be a perfectionist and delegate mm-hmm. because if you're expecting it well this is the quality it's always been done at well, like I told this agent he's like man you know the problem if I hire people right now my retention is like 96% and I said well it's probably going to drop to 90 mm-hmm and it's like, oh, like you got to embrace it's gonna, you're but you're going to have 400 accounts instead of 187. Right, exactly. But you, you know, you're they're going to drop the ball sometimes. You're going to hire people, they they're learning, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to drop the ball sometimes. That's okay. Let people make mistakes and, and grow with it. So, the question I have for you today, do you have a job or a business? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a job. Nothing at all. Having a job is great. Right. Are you complaining though? 
if you're complaining mm-hmm. because oh I this I just am stuck at 100 and I want to get to 300. Well, if you're complaining, then listen to the advice I'm giving you and go from a job to a business if it's a, if it's worth it to you to scale. Right. It's harder, it takes more hours, it's more stress, but if you want to convert from a job into a business, that's the way to get to the next level. And and it might be a little more stressful, but I bet you it would be less stressful on your relationships. Uh, it can be, home. yeah. It can be absolutely. I think it's just a matter of the the constant communication. To me, right, is is all. The, you know, it's like I told this guy. I said, you know, with his wife, I said, man, it's just communication, communication. Commu- that's that's it. Doesn't matter if you're if you're broke, if you have tons. I mean, how many people that are you know, have millions of dollars get divorced? Oh god, it's not. It's not like your you know money is the magic wand for your relationship. It's communication, mm-hmm. um, no matter what. But yeah, if you can get a little structure to things and make it a little more predictable, you know, that's always a good thing. You know, being predictable, you know, there's so much uncertainty in the world that you want to have some predictability. Absolutely. So there you go. There's your advice for the day. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.